So, how many of you loved math when you were growing up? Show of hands. Ooh, we got a couple. First service, not so much. Um, how many of you as parents love helping your kids with the math homework? Yeah, yeah not so much. It's just sort of like pulling teeth. We either loved math or hated math. I was kind of in between. I really liked the predictability of math, especially in elementary school, like two plus two, it always equaled four. I liked that, there was symmetry in it. And I also liked algebra, kind of the problem solving of it, like, okay, if A equals this and B equals this, then what does C equal? And I liked that troubleshooting. But the older I got, I didn't like it so much. I started to bail out when it was like trigonometry and calculus. I was like, no, I, I don't want to do this. And by the time I got to VCU, my freshman year, I did the absolute minimum requirement for math, and then I was done. I was like, tapping out, I'm done. Because a lot of times when we um, are learning math, at some point we ask that inevitable question, when am I ever going to use this in the real world? How is this going to help me in life? Like when you got the question like, all right, the train is 100 miles away, it's 10 a.m., it's traveling 60 miles an hour. What time will the train arrive at the station? And you're thinking to yourself, can I just look up the schedule? Why do I need to figure this out? And so because we think that math is not going to be really helpful, we just sort of dismiss it. But it's interesting how much math and equations and formulas we actually use in our lives. Now, we don't think about it that way. We're not conscious of it. But I can give you a couple examples that shows the way that maybe you apply formulas to your life. So maybe when you were growing up, your parents said to you, study hard, get good grades, and then you will, what? Get into a good college. And then they say, now, if you get into a good college and you earn a degree, you'll what? Be in a lot of debt. No, you'll get a good job, right? Work long hours, outperform your coworkers, you will get a raise, get a promotion. Or maybe the doctor told you, eat healthy, exercise regularly, and you'll lose weight. So we start seeing these A plus B equals C things. If I do this, then life will deliver this. And whether we're conscious of it or not, we do this kind of equation living all the time. And we sort of expect certain outcomes in our life. And then this idea of formulas begins to permeate into our faith, into our following God and this relationship that we have with God. And we don't realize it. But the ways that we have formulas in our faith life really impact the way we see ourselves the way we see life, and the way we see God. It actually impacts everything. So have you ever asked yourself, what formulas am I living by? Now, Christians, we often believe that there are some Christian formulas for a good life. For example, if I pray, if I do my devotions, read the Bible, God will answer my prayers. Or if I serve... If I go to church, maybe twice a month, if I throw something in the bucket, God will bless me. Or parents, you're like, if I pray with my children every night, if I take them to church on Sunday mornings, they will grow up to be great kids who love the Lord. Now, we come to these formulas 
very honestly, because a lot of times it's sort of just a part of especially our American Christian culture. You do this and you get that. And there's even books that have been published. Does anyone remember like the prayer of Jabez? If you pray this prayer and do it so many times, God is going to give you this. Or maybe you've heard like, if you have enough faith and you name it and you claim it, God will give you this. And so it becomes just a part of our everyday thinking. And then when we read certain scriptures, it really brings it home. Like in Deuteronomy 29.9, Moses was saying to the Israelites, Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all you do. So, he was too, so God was telling the Israelites, if you follow all the laws I gave you, then your life will prosper. Or we read in Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him being God, and he will make straight your paths. So if I acknowledge God in everything in my life, it'll go easy. And a lot of parents cling to this one, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So if I just train my child to love the Lord and everything about the Bible, if I do devotions every night and they have memorized scripture, then they're not, they'll be believers when they're adults. But there is a couple of problems in this belief system that we can have this formula living when it comes to our faith. First of all, we're not able to do it. So in like that Deuteronomy verse, when we have to keep the words of God's covenant, like our end of the bargain was we would keep all of the laws. There was like 613 laws in the Old Testament we would have to execute them perfectly to uphold our end of the bargain so that God would then prosper our lives. Nobody was able to do that. And then those Proverbs that we love to read, well, they're not promises. I mean, the giveaways in the title of the book, they're Proverbs. They are just wise things. It's part of the ancient Jewish wisdom literature. Now, is it good to do these things? Absolutely. But is it a guarantee? Not at all. The book of Ecclesiastes blows that whole thing up. Proverbs is pretty much, do these things and this will happen. And then Ecclesiastes is like, but there's a glitch in the system, you know. It doesn't always work out that way. And you only have to live a day on this earth to realize that is true. But there's another thing that happens when we sort of adopt this, if I do A, God will do B philosophy it actually starts to reveal some pretty interesting things about our hearts. First of all, it's going to reveal that we think we can, can control life. We think we can make this work. That if we just do a certain number of things, then we can avoid pain, we can avoid disappointment, we can get the things that we want. And for some of you, this is the source of your anxiety because you so desperately want to avoid any disappointment, pain, and you so desperately want the goal at the end that you work really, really hard to figure out what the formula is to please God. And it's like this balance beam that you're trying to work so hard to stay on. And if I just do the right things, if I figure out the formula, it's all going to go well. And if you do go well, then you get kind of prideful. You're like, ah, oh, figured it out. But the minute things go awry, you're like, oh, got the formula wrong. There was something I'm missing. And then you keep trying to double up your efforts. Or another thing happens. You think, no, wait a minute. I held my end of the bargain, God. 
So where were you? And it creates this rift between us and God. So we think we can control life, and we know we can't. The th other thing it reveals is that we actually desire God's blessings more than we desire God. I mean, just think about how often when we pray, we sound more like we're writing a letter to Santa Claus. It's like, God, please give me this, and please give me that, and please bless this, and do this. We're just asking for all these things. And we think, like, if I just do the right things, he'll answer them. Like, God is some genie that if I just rub him the right way, he'll dispense all the blessings. Because we're far more interested in the gifts than the giver. I mean, just imagine on Christmas morning, what room are you more attracted to if you were going down the steps? The room with all the presents or the room with your dad? Be honest with yourself. It reminds me of a story that Jesus shared in Luke 15 about the prodigal son. Now, even if you've never read the Bible or gone to church, you probably have heard of the prodigal son and are familiar with it. And a lot of times we focus solely on the father and how good he is and how gracious he is to receive his son home. But there's a lot more happening in that story. So as you know, it begins with this rich father who has two sons. And the youngest son decides, hey, I just want to live life now while I'm young. So dad, I just want all my inheritance now so I can go and live life. Which in essence was telling his father, you know what, I wish you were dead because I just want the money now. And amazingly, the father gives it to him. He gives the son the money, and the son goes off to, like, Vegas, and he just lives high on the hog. You know, it's like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, until he blows it all. And then the economy crashes, there's a famine, and he's destitute. And his only option is to become a servant to someone else, and he's feeding pigs. And for a Jew, that would have been a horrific thing to have to endure. And then he comes to his senses, and he realizes, you know what? The servants at home at my father's estate are far better off than me. I just need to suck it up, admit that I was wrong, come home, and ask my dad if I can just be a servant there, because life will be much better for me there. So he gets up, he goes home, and before he even gets anywhere close to the house, the father runs to him, embraces him, welcomes him home, doesn't even let him finish the confession before he's throwing robes on him, a ring on him, and telling his servants, let's prepare a party. Let's kill the fatted calf because this son of mine who was once dead is now alive. And it's awesome. And most of us think that's the whole point of the story. But there's more to it. There's an older brother. And it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And the father says to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you notice some things about the two brothers? First of all, they each had a formula for living. The younger brother, his formula was, 
I'm your son, so I deserve to get the stuff. If you're a loving dad, then you'll give me what I want. And what I want is to just go and enjoy life. That was his formula. That was his goal. The older brother, he had a different approach. Like most first siblings do, I was the dutiful brother. I did everything right. I obeyed all of your commands, so I deserve to get what I want. And what's sad when we look at these two brothers is both of them were actually jerks. Both of them only wanted the father's stuff. Neither one was that interested in the father. And amazingly, the father loves them both. He welcomes the younger son home, and he begs the older son to come into the party. But neither of them were that interested in that. Now, the younger son, he came around to his senses. But do you notice the older son? He is just livid. He is standing out there just demanding that he didn't get what he wanted. But he was the good son. And do you see what the father says to him? You are with me always, and everything I have is yours. It's like he was telling him, the thing that you should treasure most and the thing that you need the most has been right in front of your eyes the whole time. It's me. The goat really doesn't matter. The party doesn't matter. But my love, my presence, that's what matters. But do you notice the older son? He is so pissed. You know why? Because he is so self-righteous. And that's one thing that our formula living does to us. We think that we deserve it because we have earned it. And it just reveals his pride and his selfishness. And they both, they both miss this picture that the greatest gift that they had was right in front of them. So can you relate to one of the brothers? Can you see what formula you might be living by? Because for some of us, when we become believers, we think, well, I signed up, I'm a follower of Christ, so God bless me. Like, life should be going really well now because I chose to follow you. Simply because you're my father and I'm your child, I should get the stuff. Or maybe you're on the other side. You're like, God, I have done it all. I am living a good life. I didn't lie today. I didn't kill anyone today. I didn't, I, I didn't even have any fun today. That's how much I love you. All right? So I should get what I want. Which formula do you think you're living by? And do you see that for both these brothers, to live with this formula is really not helpful. It's destructive in their relationship, and they're missing the important thing. And so that is why Jesus came, to help break us from this formula living, which we'll call the old way, because that is what they grew up in the Old Testament doing. Paul would call it later, living under the law. Because what happened was, in Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and that broke the relationship between them and God. And that was the problem. The problem wasn't that they weren't blessed enough. I mean, they were in paradise with perfect relationship with God. But because that wasn't enough for them, they go and do their own thing, break God's heart and his law, and now they're separated. And the rest of the Bible is about God trying to mend this relationship so that we can be back in God's presence. So in the Old Testament, 
it was a system of laws and sacrifice. So we got like the Ten Commandments and all of these other laws and rituals and sacrificial system that they would do to uh, be forgiven of their sins. And all the work was on our part to then be able to approach God. But it didn't work because we just were not capable of upholding it. And it didn't actually make us more holy. It just made us actually more sinful. It just revealed all the yuckiness in our hearts. So Jesus came to say, you know what? There's going to be a new way, a new way of living, a new covenant. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So he's talking about all those laws that they were following in the Old Testament, and especially like the Pharisees during this time were following. He's saying it wasn't making you perfect. It was making you, in some ways, prideful. And it was revealing your motivation that you weren't doing this just out of love and honoring God. You were doing it to get something. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And that was Jesus, through which we draw near to God. So now because Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to fulfill that covenant. I will actually live the perfect life none of you were capable of doing. And I will actually sacrifice myself. So once and for all, those sacrifices for forgiveness, done. I'm going to do all of that work so now you can draw near to God just as you are, through grace. In Romans, Paul talks about this a lot, especially in chapter 8. Just read the whole chapter. It's awesome on this subject. But the paraphrase in the message I just wanted to share from 8.3.4. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. So he's saying Jesus took care of it all, and because of that, Jesus could dwell in our hearts and actually transform our hearts in a way that the law never could. And that was the good news. And so there's freedom now. There's not this like need for performance and perfection, which is why when Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. He was saying this old way of living, of just the formula of perfection and performance and trying to do this to gain something, we're getting rid of it. It's now about grace. Come and rest and come to me. The pressure is off. And it's awesome news. It's good news. But there's something fascinating about this good news. Even though it is a relief, and it is available to all. Paul reminds us, like in Galatians and in other parts of the New Testament, we are still drawn to the old way. We prefer to live under the law. We actually like the formulas in our lives. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we will find that living the old way um, 
we'll find ourselves being pulled into the old way because of two things. First of all, we don't want to accept that we can't make life work and that we can't control everything. Because you see, if you accept Jesus' new way of living, you're accepting the fact that life will not always go the way you want. You remember Jesus said, in this world you will have blessings? No. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we have to accept the fact that, you know what, even though we are following Christ, our children may still go astray. The marriage, it might still fall apart. The job might go to somebody else. The cancer might return. And it's accepting the reality that we will be disappointed. We will experience pain. And we will not get everything we wanted. And isn't it surprising that we think that life wouldn't be that way? Because really, this is reality for every single person walking this earth. But the difference is for those who put their trust in God is that they have hope in the midst of that life. That Jesus brings this hope that we can approach God no matter how we are and we can experience his love, his guidance, his peace in the midst of all of this turmoil. And that we're not alone. Just like the father said to the older son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. So is it wrong to want our lives to work out the way we want? No. It's okay to pray for those things. But the problem arises is when we demand it or when we feel entitled to it. Like that older brother, I did everything right and you did not give me what I wanted. It's also bad to not consider that sometimes the trials in our lives, the disappointments in our life, are actually God's will that he is in control. We're not in control of our life, but God is. And sometimes God purposely brings the hardship into our lives to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God allows the disappointment because he's got something better in store for you. And so we have to release the sense that we can have control and accept that God has control. The other thing is that we, don't, we want to follow the old way of living because sometimes God's blessings are more enjoyable than his presence. I'll say that again. Sometimes we just enjoy the blessings more than we enjoy God. Larry Crabb says this really well in the book, The Pressure's Off. You don't feel the disappointment while you're closing a deal, having sex, eating or involved in fun and meaningful activities which, of course, explains your addiction to these things. As one successful Christian leader put it, when your life is working as you want and the pleasures keep rolling in, it's hard to crank up much interest in a spiritual journey. This one's just fine, so we'll call it the Christian life and relax. But when life gets hard, or when you realize the good life you have isn't satisfying something deep inside you, your interest in a new way to live develops quickly. So is it wrong to desire blessings? No. It's okay to pray for them. The problem is when we think the blessings will be the answer to our problems. 
when we think the blessings are what is going to give us true satisfaction and happiness and contentment. Again, remember what the older father said to the son. He was so focused on the blessings, but the father said, you've got me, and that is all you need. You know, the problem that we had in Eden was not that we weren't blessed enough. The problem was that we weren't satisfied enough. And that is what caused us to sin and to break that relationship. And that is what God was trying to solve the whole time, was to bring the relationship back. So Jesus, he didn't come to save us from pain. He came to save us from our sin so that we could be restored with God. And these blessings, they're temporary. The prodigal son, the younger son, he learned that after he blew through it all, that I can have it one day and it can be gone tomorrow. But the other thing he discovered was God's love for his father's love for him was always there and was waiting for him. And it's God's presence that actually sustains us, not the blessings. When we're going through a difficult time, it's knowing that God is with us. It's feeling his presence is what gets us through. It's that hope of knowing that one day I'll be fully with him. But that's the problem sometimes with focusing on just desiring God's presence over desiring his blessings. It's because we're not guaranteed to experience those, that presence all the time. This side of heaven, we just get tastes of it. We just get glimpses of it. But we know one day when we are fully present with the Lord, we will experience it for eternity. But it's hard for us. We want to feel good all the time. We want to feel God's presence all the time. But it just doesn't work that way. And sometimes we just don't understand, like, how do we experience God's presence? We think, like, oh, that's for, like, the super spiritual and stuff. But it can be as simple as just enjoying creation. I had this amazing opportunity last week to travel through Alaska. If you've not been, you've got to put it on your bucket list. It's just stunning. And some days as we were just driving through the mountains, Anne and I would have worship music going on in the car, and tears would just come to my eyes because of just the absolute beauty around us and just feeling God's love for us. I mean, I was experiencing this profound moment of God's presence in a Chevy Cruze. I mean, it can happen anywhere. And talk to anyone who's had children. They'll talk about it so many times that when that baby is born, they're like, yeah, I experienced something deeply profound, something other than this world. Like, God really does exist in that first cry of my baby. But we really don't talk about how do we cultivate this experience in God's presence. What do we do? We think it's something that, like, you just have to, like, sit quietly and just focus on God, and it'll happen. But Larry Crabb in his book, The Pressure's Off, which most of this message is inspired by, gives three really great suggestions on how we can cultivate the presence of God in our lives. The first one is, you most consistently encounter God by expressing God. So you don't experience God the most when you're by yourself. You experience it most when you're with other people. When you are actually unconditionally loving others, when you are extending forgiveness, when you are giving grace, when you are being generous, when you are loving others the way God loves you, you will experience God. 
I know for me, some of the most profound experiences with God have happened across the table in a coffee shop in just conversations with people as we really get deep into what is going on with our lives and what God is doing and just loving each other the way God intended. That is an amazing way that you can experience God's love. The second one is you experience God when you are in true community that is deeply sharing brokenness over sin and celebration of grace. So we have to put ourselves in situations where we are in relationship with others where we can just be totally honest about what we are struggling with. That we can just say, you know what? Gosh, I am so jealous of her. I am just experiencing so much envy and I feel horrible about this. And to have that person across the table say, I love you anyway. Or to tell someone, you know what? I really blew it with you. I was a total jerk yesterday and my pride just got the best of me and I just want to ask for your forgiveness. And when you receive that from another person, you're experiencing God's grace. So find yourself a set of people, a community where you can just totally be yourself and just own it. I mean, that was the turning point for the younger son, the prodigal son, was when he just owned it and came back and said, I blew it. And then he experienced the most profound experience of his father's love that he ever had in his life. So find a community where you can be broken and celebrate and experience grace together. And lastly, you allow most transformation by feeling your emptiness and facing your brokenness. Then waiting on God to transform your emptiness into thirst and brokenness into gratitude. Now let me unpack that a little bit. He's saying you can experience God in the most transforming way when you just sit in the pain of your dissatisfaction, of your disappointment, of your hurt, the emptiness, the thing that is just, ugh, it's longing inside your soul. So often what we do instead is like the uh, prodigal son. We just want to fill it with stuff. Let me just go shopping. Let me go eating. Let me go watch a movie. Let me just escape the emptiness and fill it with things that the world can provide. But none of it's going to satisfy. What he says is sit in it, feel it, and wait on God to meet you there. And something profound can happen. I know for me, I've experienced this a lot through some really difficult times in my life. One was years ago when I was going through infertility. I desperately wanted to have children, and that's a good thing to want. And I would pray for it, like, God, please let me have a kid. And every month that I didn't get pregnant, I was devastated. And I was so focused on just asking for the blessing. And it got to a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. And then something changed in my prayer. One day I said, God, this is killing me. Can you please just meet me in this pain? And can you come heal my heart? And God did. I felt his healing presence, and I felt him comfort me in my pain. Now, did I always long for kids? Sure. But I experienced that God was with me in the midst of that. And it just made me thirst for him more. And then the idea of our brokenness turning into gratitude, it's just owning your stuff. Owning that you're broken. Owning that you are a selfish sinner. 
And when you actually just sit in that and invite God to meet you there and realize he loves you in the midst of that, it just brings so much gratitude. I mean, just imagine what the prodigal son felt as he was all muddy and dirty and filthy and just looked like a mess. And his dad is just pouring love and affection and covering him with robes and just celebrating him. I mean, it's powerful. But he only could do that when he owned his stuff and went back. And that's what he's saying here. Like, just sit in it and just own your junk and invite God into it. Don't try to escape it. Don't try to numb it. Don't try to get what the world will do to try to mask it. But just be in it and just watch how you will experience God. And these are not to-dos. This is not a formula on how to guarantee that you will experience God because it's not going to happen every single moment. But it is a new way of seeing life and setting your heart on things above. And then what happens is, as we cultivate this experiencing God in our lives and open our eyes to all that God is around us, we will experience God more and more, and our thirst for him will grow because we'll never be fully satisfied on this side of heaven, but we can thirst more and more. And as we thirst for God and experience him, we will begin to walk away from the old way of living. We will let go of the formulas. We will get out from under the law because our desire is no longer to make life work. Our desire is to experience God and God alone. And we will let go of our grip of control and we will finally rest in his love. So you have to ask yourself, what formula am I going to live by? Because the choice is yours. God isn't going to make you do it. He will allow you to choose whether you want the old way or the new way. So you can choose the old way and just work really hard to try to make life work and just get what you want and to fool yourself into thinking that you can be in control. Or you can let go and realize life is not necessarily going to go the way you want, but God will be with you in it. And God will make it all work together for good. And eventually, on the other side of heaven, you will experience God fully for eternity. So what do you want? The old way or the new way? Do you want to desire the world and control or desire God above all else? And accepting the fact that Jesus has taken care of it all so that you can live in his love, rest in his grace, and thirst for his presence. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your son Jesus came so that we no longer had to live by the formula, that we no longer had to be perfect and to perform just to be able to approach you, but that you came to us, Emmanuel, God with us, and you took care of the covenant for us, and you sacrificed for us so that we could experience you forever. God, just help us let go of these formulas, help us let go of control, and embrace and desire you above all things, and to know that everything that you have is ours, and everything we need is in you. In your son Jesus' name, amen.